0: Welcome to the Merchants of Dirt podcast, episode number five. Thank you for joining me for the Merchants of Dirt podcast. This is your insider's guide to practical recreational engineering, where I teach you the art and science of building, promoting and directing off-road races. I'm your host, professional reckoner and race promoter Kyle Bondo. Coming up on this episode, we'll talk about the rant I recorded at the DC PodFest this past weekend, tell you about the new race promoters group I started on Facebook, and we get into how you should handle the politics that mess with your race promotion business. All right, today is a great day for racing. This week, I had the opportunity to go to something I've never done before. I mean, this being episode number five. Of the Merchants of Dirt podcast, I really haven't met a whole lot of podcasters, especially podcasters here in the local in the local area. So the DC PodFest was a small, intimate gathering of maybe a hundred or so folks over the weekend that were all pretty much local podcasters. There was a few people from out of town, but most people were were here in the local DC and Northern Virginia Maryland area. It was a great opportunity. To come out of the you know come out of the bomb shelter out of the basement and talk to people about the technology of podcasting, different tips and tricks on how to be a podcaster, ways to to talk or ways to add humor, ways to oh and certainly something that uh, I've never done before because this is currently a, a solo show is interview guests and how to interview guests and how to get. Connections between phones and Skype, and how to get the audio channels all hooked together. So, tons and tons of detail. It was way more bang for the buck, especially if you're if you're into podcasting. It was fantastic, and I met some great people, made some great contacts. The networking there was fantastic. But one thing that I got to do there that kind of put me a little bit in the in the hot seat was. The ability to record a live podcast. Now, I do I do prep. You know, I write b- the blog for reckoner.com. I usually organize my thoughts. It takes me a couple days to write a blog post, format it, make it grammar. And even then, I still I miss a misspelling and stuff like that. It's, blog writing blogs is tough. But for podcasting, I do the same thing I do for writing a blog post, and then try to work that into a script. So at least I know what the heck I'm going to talk about. Right now, I'm I'm like off script. You know, I'm coming. I'm trying something new. I'm trying this this kind of off the top of my head type podcasting. So this is a an interesting new scary way to talk to you. But what I got to do is I got to do a live show. And so in a live show, I decided to to sit down with uh, guys there who were who had all their equipment all set up. And a special shout out to uh, Justin Emery who was running the booth there part of new media recording studios i believe they're based out of philadelphia pennsylvania i think their address is uh, Tervos at least i think that's how you say that but they sat down a couple microphones a mixer and i was able to to do a little five minute show you know right then and there at the at the festival which i thought was really cool so right now i'm gonna i'm gonna share with you my my little show my my mini show that i did at the dc podfest in which I, I talked about something that I think is, you know, in, in, in racing itself, is race directors and race promoters running in their own race. And I know everyone has seen them happen. Everyone knows that race director, the race promoter that does it. And this is my little rant about that topic. Enjoy. All right, this episode is coming to you live from the DC PodFest in D.C., at the Winterbred Factory in Northwest. Where I got a chance to talk to some some great podcasters and listen to some talks. And it kind of uh, thought me, thought uh, to bring up this topic that's been on top of my mind for a while that's been really bugging me. So this is a rant that goes kind of to those race promoters, organizers, and directors that think they can build a race and race in the same event. And I want to tell you that you can't. And you're going to ask yourself, why not? You know, I built it. Can I race it too? No, and I'll tell you why. Reason number one, who the hell is in charge of your race? If you're out racing, who's in charge? The answer is not you. The race is your responsibility, and you are it's missing the captain if you're out on the course. Now I know the pull of wanting to race with your friends can be strong, but you need to resist it. Your race needs your direction. It's your job to keep track of the race on track, maintain the schedule, solve the problems, and you can't do that if you're not there. So that leads us to reason number two. This is your name, your company's name, on the permit and in the insurance policy, right? And if that's true, if you are responsible for this race, then safety of your racers is your responsibility. If you're elsewhere and something bad happens, how can you respond? Worse yet, your insurance may not cover the accident if you're negligent in overseeing your events. Being out on the course as a racer could put you and your company in a very bad situation. And liability is no joke. But taking part in your race, an injury or worse, a death, may be seen as gross negligence. Now that's a legal term for someone who's going to be fully responsible for something bad happening. Gross negligence. It even sounds bad, doesn't it? So don't put yourself or your livelihood or your business and personal wealth at risk. Stay in charge and vigilant at all times. Okay, reason number three. Do you really think your part-time or volunteer staff can solve everything? If you have staff, and maybe an assistant race director, you might be able to get away with this by going on racing. However, most race promoters don't have any assistant anything. Some barely even have enough volunteers to cover everything in every position. If everyone covering for you while you're out having fun is temporary help, who is representing your company and your race? Volunteers? No way. Don't put your reputation at risk by leaving what amounts to strangers in charge of your race. And I've already pointed out in another blog post about how reputation is a key event and that the number one reason volunteers can ruin your race is by being the ones who have to answer the questions, not you. If you put one of them in charge of complaints, scheduling issues, other conflicts, what do you expect them to do if they're never prepared for those situations? All I can say is this. I will get the race director for you. As soon as he or she comes off the course. Yeah, that will fly to a pissed off customer, won't it? If you want to look completely unprofessional, disappear for an hour. I won't be the only one, it won't be the only thing that disappears. You're the leader of your race, so you need to act like it. The buck stops with you. Your role is to lead, not just when you want to, and not just before or after you've raced your own course but from the time that you put your first arrow up to the time you take the last bag of trash away, you are the first one at the venue and the last one to leave. Always in charge, always vigilant, always leading. Do not put your event at risk by disappearing to erase your own course. Save that for other races that other race promoters are putting on. You put your racers at risk when you neglect them for a quick bit of fun and you put yourself at risk by delegating responsibilities to others. Stay focused, stay visible, and stay in charge at all times. Your family, your business, your reputation, and even your livelihood depends on it. All right, that was me live on location at the Wonder Bread Factory. Let me say it right this time. Live is tough. You gotta think on your feet. But in downtown, Northwest DC, there's a place called the Wonder Bread Factory, and it used to be the building where they used to make, you guessed it, Wonder Bread. Well, they turned it into an office building. It's very hipster, very chic. still has all the old I-beams and brick, places where the ovens were, and it's conference rooms now and offices. It's very cool. So for a tiny little conference like this, it was the perfect setting. So during that conference, I learned a little trick from a couple different podcasters about how to reach out to audience. Now, some podcasters have an email address, you have a website, you have... All your contact information you have Twitter but Facebook a Facebook page is kind of more directed towards kind of a business atmosphere and not really a good tool for discussion per se as far as the page goes now what they recommended was to do things a little more intimate which is create a group now why create a group for Facebook for this kind of topic well, because this is a you know this is a a podcast dedicated to the building, promoting, and directing of off-road races. This group, which I formed, called the Emergence of Dirt Race Promoters Group, is a forum in which race promoters and people who want to be race promoters and people who are thinking about starting their first race can join. It's for free and talk to other race promoters and ask questions and have a very open dialogue. And be able to talk about anything you want. So again, that's the that's the Merchants of Dirt Race Promoters Group on Facebook, in which it's not it's not just, you know, pimping you for sales and all that kind of thing. It's it's a serious discussion, kind of like just like this podcast is, about topics that are near and dear to building a race promotion business. And Already have a uh, several, at least some several race promoters here in the local area have have joined in, and I'm hoping some more will come as well, and hoping to grow this group, and it becomes kind of the the venue for discussing race promotion topics beyond the podcast, beyond the blog. So that's what I started this week. And I think uh, a couple other podcasters have groups like this and it's a great way for reaching out to your audience. So, you know, I'm, I have a, what I think I have scheduled 10 topics in advance for my podcast. And, you know, Christmas is going to come around, go roll in the new year, got it some more. I want to talk about my, my 90 day roadmap I've created. I've got uh, a whole bunch of, uh, of great topics about the race direction and some of the nuances within the race day planning permits etc but I'm just one guy you know and I'm kind of big in mountain bike racing I love trail running that's cool but running is not really my favorite I love adventure racing uh cyclocross yeah you know I can do it don't really you know not really my thing either and orienteering is kind of fun but that's just that's me that's my personal opinion about the kind of off-road racing I like someone else especially some of these other race promoters that are in there that are in this group, will have way more information about a topic than I will. You know, I'm not the, the oracle of uh, of uh, Delphi that can tell you everything you know about race promotion. You know, if you heard it from Kyle, it's gospel. You know, not at all. I'd You know, my ego is not that big. All right. Evil Knievel's next stunt is not to jump my ego. So... I understand that there is race promoters and race education out there. And the whole point of Reckoner and Merchants of Dirt is to teach you the art and science of of this of this industry. And what a better way to do that than to get a whole bunch of other people, just like just like me, in a room, you know, virtual room on Facebook, to talk about this. So the Merchants of Dirt Race Promoters Group is that forum. Now, I think I said that Thursday is gonna be the day that race promoters will be allowed to, to pimp their stuff. And if they got a blog out there and it's a blog for educational purposes, not to to be this all salesy stuff, then that's, you know, that's a perfect opportunity to, to throw that stuff in there. So they get a little self-promotion. You get to learn about some other things, some of their offerings, some of the races out there, because some of the races they're creating are just fantastic. And you get the opportunity as someone kind of learning and developing the skills of race promotion to have a place where that information lives and places where you can ask the questions that maybe you're afraid to ask. So again, that's the Merchants of Dirt Race Promoters Group. Just started up on Facebook. It's closed group. So just ask to, to be joined as a member and uh, we'll let you in. I'll also put those links in the show notes so that you have you have everything you need to uh, to become a member. So, And I'll be talking about this over the next couple of weeks, too, especially especially at the end of the broadcast. So that's our, that's our second topic for today. Now on to the main event. And because it is, let's see, this is recording on the Monday before the national election to elect President of the United States in the United States. That's kind of a big deal. I mean, it's the first Tuesday of November every four years and place is bananas everyone is talking politics right and left I have trouble even reading Facebook can't watch TV political ads everywhere there are signs everywhere it's just nuts but that being said I thought it take this would be a perfect opportunity to start to talk about the politics that mess with your race promotion business because who said there was no politics in racing Chances are it was you. And it's understandable. I mean, we often think that off road racing sits outside the political struggles of Washington, D.C. You think your carefully scheduled, mapped and ready trail fun doesn't seem like a place you would find politics anyway. I mean, you're probably the kind of person that finds a way to avoid all the drama of politics in the first place, right? I mean, if it gets too bad on TV and Facebook, I mean just like me, you probably take a trip out to your favorite trail and escape it all. I know I do. A lot of times the DVR is my best friend, skip all those commercials, right? I mean, besides, politicians don't care about my off-road races, right? Well, if only that were true. Unfortunately, in this day and age, even off-road racing has been politicized. But you you want to you want to ask yourself, when did this happen? I mean, when did all these politics and these politicians suddenly show up to my trail? Case in point, here in Northern Virginia, there's a local congressman. And if I say Northern Virginia, you can probably guess who that person is. When he was a county guy, made it his life's mission to create this green space that spans through the county, which is really cool. I mean, party aside... A guy who's interested in making sure that overdevelopment doesn't take place and the green space is maintained is great. Natural trails—I mean, you kind of had to figure out how it all pieced together because roads and stuff cut through it. But once you got you figured it out, it was a good ride, and it kind of linked some parks together. It was fantastic. But then he became a congressman, and suddenly he was pressuring everyone to pave. Everything he created in the green space. So a green space now with a 10-foot-wide cement path rolling through the middle of it. You know, money aside, roots tearing on stuff, bridges out, all that kind of thing. I mean, some of it looks nice, but if you're a trail runner or a mountain biker, man, it is not cool that he, you know, they went and paved. You know, went back to Ohio and everything was paved, right? As the song goes. So, I mean, that's a that's a just a personal example. Anecdotal at best, of politics kind of rearing its ugly head, you know, just in your own backyard. I mean, now what's the flip side of that? Well, a paved trail allows accessibility to older folks, younger folks, you know, kids with train wheels, older folks with uh, with their single-speed uh, beach cruisers, wheelchairs. I mean, that makes the green area more accessible. Okay, grant you that, but you know, I'm still heartbroken that. You know, so much got paved. It's not all paved. Not yet. But it's still one of those kind of things where ah, I can see both sides. So, man, it makes that tough. So, when you ask yourself, when did this happen? The truth is, it actually happened a while ago. It happened a long time ago. I mean, the Wilderness Act was passed in, what, 1964? So... As long as there have been politicians, there have been politicians managing public land, trails, wilderness, etc. Okay? Here's the deal. You were probably just ignoring it. Because by avoiding the actions of your politicians, they acted on your best interests without you. I mean, and how did they know it was your best interest? Well, they didn't. Because you never told them. They passed bills, laws, new regulations, hundreds of miles away from your races without any of your input. Only when these bills, laws, and regulations had a direct impact on your gun money, on your races gun money, sorry, that's a that's a Washington State thing. Do you suddenly notice that something is wrong? You know, but by then it's too late, right? Or is it? Uh, I don't believe anything is ever too late. And if you haven't been hiding in a cabin in the woods and cut off from the world, just like I said as I, I started this, you might be aware there's a national election for President of the United States coming up. And in fact, it starts tomorrow morning. Actually, it's early voting has been taking place for weeks, so it actually started a couple weeks ago. But though know, the Super Bowl happens tomorrow. It's the big day. You know, wall-to-wall TV coverage, radio coverage. It's going to be inescapable. And Hopefully, unlike other elections, it will be decided tonight because God forbid, it drags on for weeks with courts and you know hanging chads and stuff. Let's hope that doesn't happen, right? So many of your friends and family and even your social media outlets are gonna are talking endlessly about who should win, who should lose, who should be offended, who should go to jail. Just like most elections for president, this election has all sorts of people politically charged. You know, but unlike other elections, you can no longer put your head in the sand and pretend politics do not have an impact on your races. Especially when you go about operating a business, using public land, operating a business on public land, or just trying to make money with a business in general. Many race promoters do not want to even think about politics, and I get that. I mean, politics sucks. It's complicated. It's, you know, some people say it's the, it's what? It's the politics that are for... The, no, I'm not going to say that. So it's like, you know, I got to face a radio, right? That kind of thing. Okay. Politics not kind of same point, but they often say, leave me out of politics. I just want to build races. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where Mr. Murphy loves to come in. Mr. Murphy loves to hear people say, leave me out of politics. I just want to build races because he's going to pass a bill or a law or regulation that's going to screw your race completely up. So sorry, you can't avoid it any longer. You need to be involved. I mean, to be a successful race promoter, you need to be aware that people are making the political decisions that will have a huge economic impact on you, especially on how you plan, promote, and direct your events. You need to be ready for that. I mean, in this season of political drama, you need to know what issues can aid or disrupt your racing efforts and who is for or against those issues. Do you know what those are? In the case you are someone who just came out of the wilderness, you know, just in case you are, here are a few issues I think all race promoters need to pay pay attention to. All right? This is not an exhaustive list. This is top three of things that that Kyle thinks about at, you know, O Dark Thirty when he's thinking up crazy ideas about what people should think about race promotion. So... I, I'm going to hit you up with these top three, not in any order, and you may have others. So I'll tell you the top three ones that I think about when I think about race promotion. All right, issue number one, the issue of land ownership. So at a glance, this issue goes like this. The U.S. government owns 640 million acres of land. Now think about that for a minute. That's a lot of land, right? It is nearly a third of the United States. Okay, that might seem a lot to some of us on the East Coast where several states have less, but you know, several states have less than 2% of the land controlled by the U.S. government. We're talking from Texas to the Atlantic Ocean, the U.S. government averages about 5% or less land ownership in most states. I think the biggest one is North Carolina with like 11.8%. It's not a lot. So you probably have some national parks near you, some, some places where... And some national monuments, things like that, are preserved by the federal government. Not the state, not the regional, not your county, not your city. Federal government, right? Texas to Atlantic Ocean, 11% is the most, right? Not so much. Okay? If you live in one of those states, that's not a big deal. However, if you're a race promoter from one of the western states, and I'm a kid who grew up in Seattle, but I live in Virginia, so I, I, can, I can play both sides of this argument very well, you understand the problem way better than the you know, East Coast folks, right? Out on that left coast. Just a brief understanding how what US the US government owns in each state. I mean, Nevada is 84%, Alaska, 69%, Utah, 57%, Oregon, 53%, Idaho, 50%, Arizona, 48%, California, 45%, Wyoming, 42%, New Mexico, 41%, Colorado, 36, Washington, 30%, 30, Montana, 29. That's percentage of the state. Nevada, eighty-four percent, eighty-four percent. That's almost like the whole state. You know, California, forty-five percent. That's half of California is owned by the federal government. And if you want to see the the whole the whole list and the complete account of U.S. government owns in each state, I got in the show notes. I'm going to have an article called "Just How Much Land Does the Federal Government Own and Why," uh, on out on uh, BigThink.com. And in this article by Frank Jacobs. He states that the map of federal land ownership is stunningly effective at bringing home its message that federal land ownership out west is huge. I mean, but who who actually owns this land? Who's running this land? Jacobs points out that according to the Congressional Research Service, a majority of the land is administered by five federal government agencies. They are the Department of Agriculture, which is administered through the United States Forest Service, three parts of the Department of Interior, the National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the Fish and Wildlife Service, and of course the Department of Defense, various agencies, military branches, etc. But the amount of land ownership out west is not the biggest part of the problem. The problem, especially to race promoters, is the federal mismanagement of that land due to complicated, inconsistent, or blocked recreational opportunities. The federal government agencies that are responsible for the rules and regulations have created a bureaucratic nightmare that Jacobs identifies as a fight between good stewardship of the land and too much government intervention in how the land is used. As a race promoter, the issue directly impacts your capability to use public land as a race venue. The more land the U.S. government owns and then shuts off to recreational activities, the fewer areas you will have to host races. I mean, therein lies the political issue. Are you for environmental protection via the blocking of recreational opportunities on federal land? Or are you for the public use of federal land with conservation guiding your management through a permit process? Furthermore, should the federal government even be in the business of owning that much land in the first place? Or should that land be given back to the states so that they can be the stewards? responsible for the land inside their own borders not an easy subject to consider one side wants environmental protection the other wants conservation by permitted use so this is this is definitely one of those topics that not something you can just go oh yeah well that's the right side and that's the wrong side there's multiple sides and as an American which side do you agree with the most as a race promoter which side do you think agrees with your principles the most Can there be a balance between environmental protection and conservation? Right, the next issue is the issue of land access. So what is this issue at a glance? This issue focuses on how you access public land that has already been set aside for public use. If you're a mountain biker, this one is very important to you. Especially after recent reports of lawmakers banning mountain bikes in wilderness areas that once allowed them. I mean, take for instance the case of Bitterroot National Forest in Montana, presented by Vernon Felton of the Adventure Journal. In Felton's article, he cites that the U.S. Forest Service changed the rules in 2015 and made mountain bikers no longer welcome on 178 miles of single track. Why the ban? I mean, critics of mountain biking believe that mountain bikes cause more erosion or disturb wildlife more often than any other trail users. This is including hikers, backpackers, and of course, horses. You know, mountain bikes don't get the the same consideration as those other groups. There's a lot of environmental groups that really do not like mountain bikers. And for good cause. Back in the day, mountain bikers kind of made a name for themselves as being the people who built trails that weren't authorized people who would run people off trails they were the you know the dope smoking bad boys of off-road racing you know that that's changed tremendously over the past 20 years but the stigma still remains the mountain bikers are only out for their own good destroy the environment build jumps and cause problems so there is a, a fundamental stereotype that is is at play here but what happened with, in this particular instance is that they used the Wilderness Act, remember we talked about that, in 1964, to kick these mountain bikers off the trail. 1964, mountain bikes didn't exist. So how do you take the Wilderness Act of 1964 and find a way to include mountain bikes? Well, in Felton's article, he points out that there was a number of environmental protection groups that convinced the U.S. Forest Service to change their regulations in 1984 to explicitly prohibit mountain bikes from wilderness areas i mean they created new regulations they created new regulations not congress u.s forest service created new regulations they expanded the wording to the prohibition from motorized to mechanized transport if you're a motorized transport you gotta have a motor right but if you're mechanized well you know that can be i mean mechanized transport I and mean, i can think of a lot of things that are mechanized can't you Mountain bikes unfortunately falls into into that category. So this change then, of course, not to be outdone, prompted the Bureau of Land Management, the National Park Service, and the Fish and Wildlife Service to also change their definitions regarding mountain bikes. So Felton says that the change resulted in the banning of mountain bikes from 762 wilderness areas in 44 states. Think about that for a second. With no congressional approval, a handful of U.S. government organizations kicked mountain bikers off nearly 110 million acres, or, if you read Felton's article, roughly 5% of the American's landscape. Did you even know that happened? Or did you even know this is still happening? In the There's another side of this issue, too. I mean, advocates like Mark Eller, who's the communications director for the International Mountain Biking Association, or IMBA, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes at uh, purchaseofdirt.com, have defended mountain bike use on public lands. IMDbA continually argues that, quote from, from Mr. Eller, vast majority of independent peer-reviewed studies indicate that mountain bikers are no more impacting on natural resources than other recreational trail users, end quote. So science has helped back up mountain bikers that horseback riders and hikers and trail users all have the same number of impact for natural resources. Hmm doesn't seem to be swaying a lot of people, though. So IMDBA takes it it to another level. And they have lobbied heavily to get mountain bikes removed from the federal portrayal as the motorized vehicle or that mechanized thing. So some mountain biking advocates have gone as far as to create campaigns to illustrate how mountain bikes are not motorbikes. So where do you stand on this issue? Do you think we should allow everyone to use public land, only allow some to use public land, or allow no one to use public land? Do you believe the argument provided by organizations like the Sierra Club and the Wilderness Society that explicitly prohibit mountain bikes in wilderness areas is a good thing? Or do you believe organizations like IMBA, Mountain Biking's largest advocacy group, when they state that they want to work with policymakers and competing trail users to preserve access to existing multi-use trails, particularly by redrawing the proposed wilderness boundaries, or alternative preservation classifications to allow bike access is that more your ball and wax when it comes to be a race promoter. Race promoters who host mountain bike races tend to fall into the work with policymakers on competing trail u- with and competing trail users camp. However, there's yet another issue hiding in this controversy. See, there's there's always a multiple there's these multiple faceted arguments, and this comes from the dark side of the environmental movement. The people who are invested in removing mountain bikes from public lands that are willing to injure even kill riders with booby traps. Yeah, that's right, booby traps. And we're talking from wooden boards full of nails that was found in Eagle, Colorado. I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And punchy stake traps, like straight out of the Vietnam War discovered in the United Kingdom. I mean, extremists are going through great lengths to prevent even limited access by mountain bikers. But unfortunately, these traps don't discriminate. They injure hikers, backpackers, trail runners. Could you imagine a horse falling into a punji trap? Dear God. I mean, right along, it's just like mountain bikers. I mean, mountain bikers already. This doesn't help the environmental cause. So it's just yet another issue with multiple sides. So some of these sides have real consequences to them. So far, when it comes to finding the balance, the IMBA's public land initiative is one of the few efforts that tries to promote bicycle-friendly approaches towards public land protection. The other side wants mountain bikes to be banned from even... More wilderness areas. So where do you see yourself on this issue? I mean, can there be a balance between environmental protection and mountain bike use? Or is it banning mountain bikes today and then maybe it's trail runners tomorrow? Okay, so all this political talk is is, is pretty heavy. So I save the third issue as to be a little more lighthearted. And this is the issue of diets and foods. So how does the issue of diets and foods have to do with politics? I will show you because... Kyle is here to help the issue is science nutrition and dietary philosophies all offer different choices when it comes to what racers eat and what racers want to eat I mean so how is that political well time for the this political to be easier to digest pun intended right once upon a time it's you know it's Kyle's story time here we go once upon a time pizza was a great post-race food. Boy, have times changed! Take for example an article I found on theclimb.com. This is a blog post titled "12 Items I Want to See on My Next Marathon Aid Station Table." Now, the marathons are not exactly off-road racing, but you can have an off-road marathon, so hey, okay, I think it applies. There you go. There's my justification. If you look at this list, and this list is on in my show notes at MerchantsOfDirt.com, you'll notice you don't see pepperoni pizza. On this list. In fact, you don't see any meat at all. I mean, where's the beef jerky? Where's the pizza? Where's the beef? Meat, among other interesting foods, is no longer considered an acceptable race food in certain circles. Welcome to the politics, or the political world, of food. Yeah, I didn't get the memo either. Who knew that food could be so contentious? On one side, you have the herbivores. Those who... Do not eat meat or fish. Define terms that are defined by terms like vegans or vegetarians. On the other, you have the omnivores. Those that eat anything, including meat and fish, that are defined by terms like carnitarian or meat eaters. So which side do you see yourself on? More importantly, which side is most represented by your customers? Don't know? Okay. Try this experiment on for size. Put out... 20 pepperoni pizzas at your next race. Yep, those racers that came up to you and let you know what they thought about pizza as a post-race food will identify themselves very quickly. But is the alternative to offer only fruits, grains, nuts, and vegetables? It could be, but then there are the complaints you might get from the pro pizza crowd. Seeing all this rabbit food, what's a race promoter to do? Your choices are simple on this one. Walk the thin line by providing options to both. Take a position, one side or the other, and stick to it. Or three, don't offer post-race food at all. Walking the line can work in pleasing most customers. Like they say, you're only gonna please 50% of the people 50% of the time. Plus, it will require you to spend more on post-race food to satisfy everyone. Taking a position can work too. Let's everyone know where you stand on this issue, but it may also cost you many of your customers who have the opposite position. Of course, you could just stay out of the post-race food business altogether, but that might not make too many people happy, especially if you've been known for providing post-race food. When it comes to the politics of food, you have to decide what is your position. You could try what Venture Addicts Racing has done, as a local venture racing company here in Virginia. They put out spaghetti. How is your position on spaghetti? Because this was get spaghetti was both with meatballs and without meatballs. Plus, both meat eaters and vegetarians alike do like and enjoy spaghetti. It's like the United Nations of food. Complementing this post-race spaghetti, they added garlic bread, salad, and other side dishes to round out the assortment. So we get your rabbit foods, your meat foods, your pasta food. Expensive? maybe good absolutely a balanced position on the wacky politics of food well you decide i mean there's a certain world views that you will either have to support or not support food is just a perfect example of illustrating some of the absurdity that takes place i mean some people take food very very seriously other people don't really care and in politics a lot of that is what you're going to find people don't really care about certain things but there is that one or two topics they really care about. And in race promotion, there are some topics that you should absolutely care about. I mean, the truth is you and your customers will care deeply about some issues and not others, and not at the same time. I mean, it's your job to know what those issues are. By taking any position on any getting subject, there will be consequences associated with it. I mean, regardless of the issue, Always remember to stay cool, polite, and honest about where you stand. And this can be tough, especially on an issue that you're very passionate about. But you can navigate politics towards your best interest so long as you understand how these issues can and will affect your business. However, to help you survive the political world of race of the race promoter, there are a few important skills that I want to want to tell you about to help keep things from going off the deep end. First, determine where you stand on an issue most important to you, and then find out where the power bases are. Who are the movers and shakers that are on your side, and who are the people with hidden clout that wants your side to fail? You need to sort your political enemies from your political allies and understand who stands to win or lose the most on any given issue. Second, you need to become adept at discovering the information that lives in the worlds of facts not hidden within the world of spin, rumor, and window. And this might be tough, because this doesn't require you to do your own research and to trust sources that you know will give you the straight scoop. You're gonna have to go digging for this stuff, all right? Because you need to know that everyone has an agenda, everyone, even the people who supposedly are providing you the facts. So, trust but verify. And it's your job to determine which of your representatives will really address your concerns and who are just telling you that they will address them just to get your vote. Voting records are important, and words do mean something, particularly the use of precise language. Hold your elected officials' feet to the figurative fire, and don't allow them to use the vague or that noncommittal stuff. We all know what that is. That's the answering a question with a question, or not answering the question, talking about something else. Everyone hates that. That's why no one likes politics, or politicians. I mean, there is always a reason they do not want to take a position on a subject. Find out what that reason is before you act. Finally, you need to predict the political pitfall that could hurt your business and determine what you can do to head off an unfortunate event. Have a contingency plan in place in case a political fight does not go your way. Additionally, be ready to act if a political decision does go your way. and Don't let that opportunity go to waste. Ultimately, success in politics only comes to those race promoters who stop blaming politics for their problems and start handling these issues before they handle you right out of business. And now you know. Thank you for joining me for the Merchants of Dirt podcast. If you learned something about this and you want to learn more, I have a few things I want you to do right now. First, go to Reckoneer.com join and drop your email in the box. I also put a link on merchantsofdirtcom slash join that will take you to the Reckoneer site and we'll get that all worked out sooner or later. I mean, we're at episode five, so we're trying to work out the kinks in that. Second, I want to hear back from you in this episode, and we created the Merchants of Dirt race promoters group that we want you to to join to where you can put questions in there, and not only will I be able to answer them, but a whole bunch of other race promoters are in there to help you answer that as well. So if you have a question, that's a great way to to ask a question. But if you want to hear particularly from me, then I'm at Merchants of Dirt on Twitter. It's no spaces, it's just at Merchants of Dirt. Third and most important, if you like this episode, I would love for you to go to the iTunes page and subscribe. Definitely want to subscribe so I can be constantly putting stuff into your iPod or your your iPhone. Or even, you know, if you're if you're an Android guy, I've got I'm on Stitcher, I'm on Google Play Music. But definitely go to iTunes. That's where that's the majority of podcasters get their feedback from. And if you really like the show. Give me a quick review and a five star rating. That would really help out. So, thank you for listening to the Merchant's Dirt Podcast. I am Kyle Bondo, the Reckoner, and I'm hoping you take what you learned today and go weave idle into epic. Until next time.